Well, let's take our Bibles for the final time and turn to the book of Galatians, the final time for some time. Galatians chapter 6, we're closing out the book today. So this letter from Paul the Apostle to the churches in the region known as Galatia, which would be present-day Turkey today. It's the place that Paul went on his first missionary journey. It's where he established a number of churches in Pisidian Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, and Derbe. He went in and he preached the gospel of grace, that man can have his life right with God by trusting Jesus as their Lord and Savior. But after he left, there were others that would come in, and what they appear to be is Jewish people who'd become believers, who were raised in the law of Moses, and couldn't let go of keeping the law. And so they told these non-Jewish believers, if you really are going to be saved, you need to believe in Jesus, and you also have to keep the law of Moses, which means the covenant signed between God and Abraham, circumcision. It meant keeping the Sabbath day. It meant keeping the dietary laws of Moses. And these guys were known by commentators as Judaizers. And that would come from Judaism, which is the practice of the Jewish faith. And these guys who had embraced, again, Christianity, but were trying to mix it with the old covenant of law. And when you take grace and law and try and mix them together, it just destroys both. It just does not work that way. And Paul was very emphatic as he went through this book, speaking against that. His emphasis throughout the book was justification by faith. And the word justification simply means that you're pardoned. You're declared innocent. You're no longer guilty by faith by trusting in Jesus as your Lord and Savior. And as we went through the letter, especially as we got to the last couple of chapters, he spoke about how we live practically as Christians. And we talked about walking in the spirit. And the idea is God is putting the desires on our heart to do the right thing and to live for him. It's our choice whether we decide to do the right thing or do the wrong thing. But the cool thing about it is as Christians, the Holy Spirit resides within. So he's not only putting the desire in our heart, he get, he's giving us the ability to live out what he's laying on our heart. And so when we think that we're maybe overcome by addictions and so forth, the reality is, is we've got victory in Jesus. And so it's making that decision time and again. And as we spoke, the more we do it, the more habitual it becomes, the easier it becomes to do that. And so it's, again, that disciplined life. I, I, you know, we don't like the word discipline. I like the word discipline. What word goes with discipline? It's disciple. And that's what we are, is we're disciples. We're followers of Jesus. And so last week, we were talking about the restoration of a fallen brother, which is so important. You know, we're not perfect. We're going to sin. It's not an excuse to live in habitual sin, but when a brother or sister falls into sin, we need to come alongside them and help them. You know, ideally what they, the point they need to get to is a repentant heart. Lord, I recognize I've sinned against you and we're there to come alongside them and to encourage them. Come on, get up, keep going, brush yourself off and, and you're going to make it all the way to the end. That's about being the family, right? The family of God and being there for one another. We also talked about the principle of sowing and reaping. Just like when you plant an apple seed in the ground, you're gonna get an apple tree from it. So when we sow to the good things in life, good things are going to come. It's just kind of like a spiritual law. If we sow to the flesh, we will of the flesh reap corruption. You can't escape it. It's going to happen 
eventually. So that's kind of where we're at in the book. Paul's getting ready to close it out, but just like, you know, the Bible has got a lot of good nuggets in it. So let's jump right in. We're going to start from verse 9 of chapter 6, which says, And let us not grow weary while doing good, for in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all especially to those who are of the household of faith. It is easy to grow weary, to lose heart, to get discouraged, isn't it? Yes. Whatever might be coming along in our life, it's easy to get discouraged. And it's, it's kind of like the word here is don't give up and keep going. I think about, uh, you know, a, a coach at halftime or, or like, you know, when the pitcher's dying on the mound in a baseball game and the, the coach goes out to give the visit, you know, usually it's a pep talk, you know, it's a, come on, you got this, you can do this. And, and that's kind of the idea too, as we gather together, we're gathering together in large part to encourage one another, you know, because we have challenges that we face in life and we can get beaten down just living in this world. And so that's a big part of us coming together is to be there for one another and encourage one another um, audibly by prayer and also especially, I think, by going through God's word. And so be encouraged. First Corinthians chapter 15, verse 58 says, therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Your life being lived for the Lord, it's, it's not pointless. It's not worthless, okay? And hang in there, as it says, we will reap those things that we've sown. So we might not see it right away, but you will ultimately reap that good, that everlasting life, that quality of life, the abundant life that Jesus talked about. And so that's my pep talk, all right? So hang in there. All right, in verse 10, it says, as we have opportunity, let us do good. And notice he says, let us do good to all. And then he emphasizes, especially those that are of the household of faith, especially those that are believers, absolutely do good. But notice how he says, do good to all, to everybody. Make the opportunity, take the opportunity, especially as they pre present themselves to do good to everybody. And you say, really, to everybody? It's like, yeah, to everybody. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, verse 44, I say to you, love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you and pray for those who spitefully use and persecute you. Wow, that's, a, that's kind of a high calling, isn't it? To do that. And the reason why is because God does that for man. He causes his reign to fall on the just and the unjust. So those who mistreat you, those who persecute you, pray for them. Remember Jesus on the cross? Remember his first words? Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. Yeah, so that's the same idea. When we do that, what does it do? It changes the inside of us. It's, it's changing our character from within. And he wants us to become more Christ-like. He wants us to become more like Jesus in doing that, having that kind of a heart. But it's not how we're naturally wired, is it? You know, there's been things that have happened to us, I'm sure some of us, that there's like, there's no way I can forgive that, but he's calling us to do that. And I think one of the main reasons why is because, think about it, he's forgiven us for so much. And now we're to forgive one another and forgive those that have done things to us and not only forgive, but to seek to do good to them. And I'll tell you what, this is what I think happens when we do that, is it just shocks the person that you would do good to them after what they've done to you. And really, what's the most important thing in the end? 
It's knowing Jesus. So if it can change their mind, their attitude, and come to know Jesus, that's all that's really going to matter in the big picture in the end. And so we're called to a high calling there. And so doing good to all, but again, especially to those who are of the household of faith, fellow believers, because again, we get beaten down in the world. We need one another to lift one another up, okay? Let's go ahead and read verses 11 through 15. See with what large letters I've written to you with my own hand. As many as desire to make a good showing in the flesh, these would compel you to be circumcised, only that they may not suffer persecution for the cross of Christ. For not even those who are circumcised keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised, that they may boast in your flesh. But God forbid that I should boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything but a new creation. He starts off in verse 11 in this section. See with what large letters I've written to you with my own hand. Now, typically, it seems that Paul would dictate his letters to a secretary. He would not be the one that would write them down. As an example, we see at the end of the book of Romans, in Romans chapter 16, verse 22, it says, I, Tertius, who wrote this epistle, greet you in the Lord. And you say, wait a minute, Romans, Paul wrote the book of Romans. Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ. But Tertius is the one who actually penned the letter. Paul was the one dictating the letter to him. And so it seems to be kind of common that this is what he did as he would write the letters. But also kind of common is at the end of the letter, he would take the pen and he was kind of like us signing signing the letter at the end of it. He would take the pen and, and, and write his final words with his own hand. And we see that in a couple of places. 1 Corinthians 16, 21 says, the salutation with my own hand, Paul's, again, right at the end of the letter. Colossians 4, 18 at the end of the letter. This salutation, notice again, by my own hand, Paul, remember my chains. Grace be with you, amen. And then 2 Thessalonians 3, 17, again, the salutation, of Paul with my own hand, which is a sign in every epistle, so I write. And so here in Galatians, it's a similar thing. And, and this is where commentators are kind of divided on, is he just picking up the pen here in verse 11 and closing it out? Or has he written the entire letter himself? Not that it really matters that much to us, but it could be a point that he's making is that this message was so important, I grabbed pen and ink and I put it to paper, if you will, to write this message out to you. Notice he says in verse 11, see with what large letters I've written to you. There was two kinds of script in the Greek. So there was the, what we would call all caps, the large, I think they call them unical letters in the Greek. And then there was the smaller, what we would call cursive, what they would write in. And so it seems like those that were uh, more skilled as scribes would write in the, the cursive type of, of lettering, and those that maybe weren't as much would write in more of the big block letters. And, and again, commentators are kind of divided on this. What did he mean by this? See with what large letters I've written to you. 
Some would say he's writing in these large letters, kind of like we would write in all caps. Not because we don't know how to use the shift key, but because we're trying to make a point. Like I've got in my notes right here, some things that are in all caps because it's a point that I want to jump off of the page to me so that I can communicate that over. And some think that that's what he's referring to, is that the body of this letter, which is justification by faith. Because the Judaizers, again, they're coming in going, you have to keep the law of Moses. It's not by works, it's by faith and faith alone in Jesus Christ. So some think that maybe that's what he means by this, okay? See with what large letters I've written. Others think that it's an I issue. And he kind of seemed to allude to something like that, didn't he, back in, in chapter four. In chapter four, beginning from verse 13, he says it was because of physical infirmity that I came to you at the first. And now as he's writing again, remember the map up in the area of Galatia, he had come through Perga and Pamphylia where apparently there was an issue stuff like malaria or an oriental eye disease is what they think he might've contracted at the time. And so as he's going through this section in chapter four, he's talking about how much the Galatians loved him. Now, if in fact he did have this eye disease, it would have been something repulsive to look at as he's sitting there telling them of the love of Jesus and he's got this oozy pus coming down his face, you know what I mean? But he goes on to say in verse 15, what then was the blessing you enjoyed? For I bear you witness that if possible, notice you would have plucked out your own eyes and given them to me. So again, you guys, this is speculation, but the idea might be is you loved me so much, you saw my condition and you were willing, if it would have done any good to rip your eyes out and give them to me, that's how much you loved me. And the context of chapter four is what happened. How come you don't love me anymore like you loved me back then? That's the idea. So coupled with verse 11, when he says, see with what large letters I've written to you with my own hand, something that maybe is just referring to that, you know, reflecting back on that as well. Again, major speculation, but some think that maybe this had something to do with this thorn in the flesh as well. So I'm just giving you a couple of tidbits as we make our way through this. Be that as it may, he brings this message and he turns, kind of comes full circle as he's closing out the letter to talk about the Judaizers again in verses 12 and 13. As many as desire to make a good showing in the flesh, these would compel you to be circumcised, only that they may not suffer persecution for the cross of Christ. Now, why would these Judaizers, these Jewish believers, suffer persecution? I think the key thing is this, and, and of course the other question is, who would they suffer persecution from? And I think the answer to that is their fellow Jewish brethren. Because it's one thing to trust Jesus as their Messiah, it's a whole nother thing to say, you don't have to keep the law anymore. I mean, those were fighting words for the Jewish people. So if they could keep these new Gentile converts to keep the law and be circumcised, then they could go to their Jewish brethren or maybe even fellow Judaizers and say, hey, look, these guys keep the law too, and they wouldn't suffer the persecution of the cross of Christ. But Paul would go on to say and speak of his boast in Jesus' cross. And, and that, that means... His joy, his purpose is all in what took place is the idea. All in what took place on the cross. What happened on the cross is Jesus bore the judgment for our sin. That's the gospel. You know, what is the good news? First Corinthians 15, three and four. 
It's that Jesus died for our sin, according to the scriptures, and he was buried and he rose again the third day, according to the scriptures. That's the gospel. So what took place on that cross is what gives me life. It's what gives you life when you put your faith in him. And so what Paul is saying is this is my only boast. This is my only joy. That is the cross of Christ and what he did for me right there. In 1 Corinthians 1.18, he said, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Isn't that the truth? When you think about Christianity, people who are not Christians, many look at Christians, look at you as a fool for believing what you believe. You know, that's not science, that's not fact. I mean, that's fairy tale. And you're looked at as foolish. But that's by those who are perishing. That's by those who don't believe. But to those who believe, the cross, the gospel, the message, it's the power of God, isn't it? That's by the, the means by which we're saved because that's where he bore the judgment for man's sin. And it's when we put our trust in him that we are then forgiven. Romans 1.16 says much the same thing. Paul said, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. So I'm not ashamed of, what is the gospel again? 1 Corinthians 15, three and four, Jesus died for our sin and that he rose victorious from the grave. So again, I'm not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God to salvation. That is how we're saved. But notice the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. It's not a universal salvation, is it? Do you see that? It's for everyone who believes. We all have the opportunity whether to trust in Jesus as our savior or not. When Adam and Eve sinned, it affected everyone. It affected them and all of their descendants. So we're born into this world with the deck stacked against us. Okay, so we're born into this world with a, a sinful nature and we're on the road to hell. I used to look at that and go, that doesn't seem fair. You know what I mean? That I'm gonna be suffering for Adam's sin. But how many of you know that I've sinned just like Adam, and if I was in Adam's shoes, I probably would have done exactly the same thing. And so anyway, the whole world is affected by their sin, but when it comes to the sacrifice of Jesus, some people would say a universal salvation, just like we were all condemned because of Adam, so we're all saved because of Jesus. Hallelujah, we're all going to heaven. But we have to read what it says. It says it's the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. What does that mean to believe? Does it simply mean to go, I believe there's a God? Or does it mean to put your faith, to put your trust in him? You're trusting him, not just as your savior, but also as your Lord. If he's the Lord, that means you're the servant. And that means you're the one who is submitting to him and following him. Let's face it, salvation is a free gift that is extended to all of us, but it really requires our entire life, doesn't it? It requires us surrendering completely over to him because he purchased us. He purchased us with his own blood. And so notice again, for everyone who believes, and then he says for the Jew first and also for the Greek. You know, it reminds me of when uh, Jesus sent out his disciples on 
the missionary tours and he would say, just go to the lost sheep of the tribes of Israel. Remember that? It's like, don't go to the Gentiles, go to, go to the children of Israel. And then we read about this here where uh, he speaks of salvation being not for the Jew exclusively, but initially. Remember when Paul would go into a city, where would he go first and preach the gospel? He went to the synagogue. I think the reason why is because God is saying, I have fulfilled the promises that I made to you. He promised them a savior. He promised them he was going to bring a new covenant to them. And it's like Paul is coming in, the disciples of Jesus are coming in, and they're saying God is a fulfiller of his promises. And so he went to the chosen of people of God first, but then the gospel would eventually go to everyone. And so I think that's very cool. And I think that's the meaning. And I think that's the idea of what he says there. And so Paul's boast, as he says here, God forbid, verse 14, that I should boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, notice by whom the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. I think there's two things going on here. One is the world no longer has that that pull, pull and allurement allurement that it once did. Admittedly, there's still temptations and so forth, but it's no longer, I wanna be rich, I wanna be famous, I wanna be powerful. That's been broken. It doesn't have the same pull that it used to have on me. And conversely in that, the world looks at me not with, I think you're great, but more so with disdain because of what I believe in, because I believe in Jesus, because I believe in the word of God. And in believing in this, Basically, I'm condemning other people who don't believe the same way. Basically, I'm a hater because I don't love everybody in the way they are. You follow what I'm saying here? And so just by being a follower of Jesus, the world doesn't have the pull it once had on me and the world doesn't look at me conversely in, in a way that, that would be uh, acceptable, but accepting, but rather with disdain, if you will. And so that's the way it is. And that's one of the things that we have to continue to remember Jesus said, if they hated me, they're gonna hate you. If we wanna live through our life and we wanna be accepted by the world, we're, you know, we're in for a rude awakening, we're also in for the temptation to compromise tremendously. We have to stand for the truth, but remember the truth goes forward spoken in love. It's gotta be spoken in love. And that's what I believe is going to really reach those whose hearts are open. He says in verse 15, for in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything but a new creation. You know, again, the Judaizers, their whole thing was you guys need to keep the law. Circumcision was the sign between God and Abraham. It's about works. It's about human attainment. It's like, you know what? That's not what matters. What matters is being a believer in Jesus. What matters is being a new creation in Christ. I found this kind of interesting just where this same kind of terminology is used in other places. And I, and I thought I'd pull it up just as we see the, the context that it's used in. And so in 1 Corinthians seven nineteen, it says circumcision is nothing and uncircumcision is nothing. But notice keeping the commandments of God is what matters. Okay. Now, do, think this through with me for just a moment because... It can be almost seem contradictory at first because the Judaizers were saying you have to keep the law of God, right? And, and here it's saying, well, circumcision doesn't matter anything. What matters is keeping the commandments of God, you know? But I don't think it's contradictory. I think when he speaks about keeping the commandments, he's not talking about the law of Moses. What is the great commandment? It's love, right? Loving God supreme, loving your neighbor as yourself. 
Love is the fulfillment of the law. Jesus said, one commandment I leave with you, and that is you love one another as I have loved you, so you also love one another. I think that's the idea. It's not about a works-based system. It really comes down to that one commandment, and that is to love. And when we do love, the law is then fulfilled through us, okay? Again, as believers, how do we love? It's the Holy Spirit bearing fruit within our hearts. And that's how God's law is fulfilled. Jesus came not to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law, right? And I believe that's true. I believe God's law, his will as recorded in the scriptures is fulfilled as we walk in the spirit and the Holy Spirit brings forth that fruit of love in our lives. Similar thing in Galatians 5, 6. Oops, I had that up there, didn't I? For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything, but notice faith working through love. So again, it's not about the attainments. It's not about keeping the law, not keeping the law. It's about your faith in Jesus and then the, the fruit of the spirit coming through that fruit of love coming forth. And so as we have in our passage right here, circumcision, uncircumcision avails nothing in reality, but a new creation. And as it says in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Friends, that's talking about the real you right there, okay? You still have the sin nature present with you, but it won't be there forever, okay? The real you is this new creation in Christ that God has made and continues to mold and make. Do you believe that? It's true. It's true. And so we want to walk in that. In the final closing verses, Verse 16, and as many as walk according to this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. From now on, let no one trouble me, for I bear in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus. Brethren, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. When he says in verse 16, as many as walk according to this rule, he's talking about what he was just referring to. And that is boasting in what Jesus has done for us and him living his life through us. So the idea of walking is how we live our lives, our manner of life. And the rule is this principle by which we live by. And when we do that, there's peace and there's mercy in our life. I wanna make one comment on the end of verse 16 when he speaks about the Israel of God. Who's he referring to when he speaks of that? I think there's two ideas that might be referred to here. One of them might be the Jewish believers, okay? Israel, they were the chosen people of God. When Jews put their faith in Jesus Christ, these would be the true Israel, if you will, the Israel of God. Or he might simply be believing, uh, speaking about all believers made up of Jews and Gentiles, in essence saying, these are the true people of God right here. The people who aren't necessarily the, the physical descendants of Abraham, but those who would be the spiritual descendants that had the same kind of faith that Abraham had. Here's a couple of verses in Romans chapter nine, where Paul is talking about the nation of Israel and the fact that they turned from God and uh, not all of them put their faith in them. In Romans 9, 6, he says, for they are not all Israel who are of Israel. In other words, they are not all the chosen people of God who are the descendants, the literal descendants of Abraham, is the idea. Romans 2.29, he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart, 
Again, what makes a person a Jew or one of the chosen people of God, spiritualizing that a little bit, is not that you're a physical descendant, but that you're a spiritual descendant, which is what the next verses speak of. Galatians 3, 7, know that only those who are of faith are sons of Abraham. Just as Abraham exercised his faith, he believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. So those who have that same kind of faith, these are the children of Abraham. And then Galatians 3.29, and if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. So if you're a Christian, then you are a descendant of Abraham. Obviously, he's speaking spiritually, right? Not literally in that. And therefore, you're an heir according to the promise. And so with this, we can see like the Israel of God would be referring to those who, who have put their faith in Jesus like Abraham put his faith in God's promise that he gave him. Does that make sense? What about the nation of Israel? Okay, some would teach that to an extreme and continue with that and say, well, that means that the church has replaced Israel and the church is the one that is going to be the, re the receiver of all of the promises that God gave to the literal nation of Israel. I just wanted to clear that up just a little bit. That's referred to as replacement theology. I don't believe that. I don't think that's an accurate way to interpret what the scriptures say. I think when we come to the Bible, literally we find that God has made promises to the literal nation of Israel and God is a fulfiller of his promises and he is going to fulfill the promises that he gave to them. In Jeremiah chapter 31, this is one passage, verses 35 through 37. It says, thus says the Lord who gives the sun for a light by day, the ordinances of the moon and the stars for a light by night, who disturbs the sea and its waves roar. The Lord of hosts is his name. If those ordinances depart from before me, if what ordinances? The sun, moon, and stars. Okay, if all of that departs from before me, says the Lord, then the seed of Israel shall also cease from being a nation before me forever. Thus says the Lord, if heaven above can be measured and the foundations of the, of the earth searched out beneath, I will also cast off all the seed of Israel for all that they have done, says the Lord. Can you get to the end of the universe and knock on the, the black wall? We've made it to the edge. We've come to the end of the universe. It's not possible, right? It's, it's as if from our vantage point, it's endless. And God is saying, if you can measure the heavens, if you can come to the end of it and measure the depths of the earth, and I think about the seas and the depths of the seas, I think about the center of the earth and how a lot of what we have is basically theory. I mean, we've never bored down to the center of the earth. If you can do that, God's saying, then I'm done with the nation of Israel. What is he saying in essence? He's not done with the nation. The other thing I wanna point out is this is Jeremiah 31, 35 to 37. 31, 31 to 34 starts like this. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. The new covenant that they're referring to is what we're going to be what we're going to be remembering when we receive communion. Remember Jesus said on the night that he was with his disciples, this cup is my blood of the new covenant. We're the ones who are benefiting from the new covenant. That new covenant is initially promised to the house of Israel and the house of Judah. And I believe that day is coming. In the last days, we're gonna find the blinders that have been on the literal nation of Israel being removed. 
In Romans 11:25, it tells us that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. A certain blindness, when Jesus came, the nation of Israel, if you will, for the most part, rejected it. But let's think about it for a moment. All of Jesus' disciples were Jewish, weren't they? The beginning of the church in Jerusalem, I mean, it was predominantly Jewish. This is what made up the church. So it's blindness in part, not blindness completely, but blindness in large part came to the nation of Israel where they rejected Jesus as their Messiah. But Romans eleven twenty five, 25, it says blindness in part has happened to Israel until, it's like until a certain point in time. And that's when the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Paul would take the gospel to the synagogue. By and large, the Jewish people, the most part, not everybody, but the most part would reject it. He then would go to the marketplace and proclaim it to the Gentiles. And by and large, they would receive it. When the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, I believe it's referring to the end of the church. The last person has come to know the Lord and get saved. It's going to be then, as it says in Romans eleven twenty six, that all Israel is saved. In Zechariah chapter 13, it speaks about two-thirds of the Jewish people being killed in the last days. It's going to be a time that's worse than what the Holocaust was. It speaks about the remaining third being saved, but being saved through the fire. It's going to be a difficult time for the Jewish people. It's going to be a difficult time for all people who live upon the earth. But then in Revelation chapter 1, verse 7, it speaks about, about them looking at Jesus when he returns at his second coming. And it speaks about them as well as the nations of the earth looking upon him and mourning for the one that they had pierced. That's a quotation from Zechariah 12.10, where it talks about the house of Israel and the house of David, looking upon and mourning as one would mourn for his own son. And I think the idea is like this, you guys. I think the idea is like the Jewish people in the last days, for whatever reason, I think it's because of the tribulation that's coming upon them during that time, is that they recognize that they've missed it in rejecting Jesus, that their forefathers had missed it in rejecting Jesus. And so they receive him for the most part as their true Messiah, their Savior and Lord. Because it says again, Romans eleven twenty six, and thus all Israel shall be saved. What does it take to get saved? It's trusting in Jesus, right? Whether you're a Gentile or whether you're a Jewish person, just like Peter said in Acts chapter 15, we know that we're going to be saved the same way that they, the Gentiles, are saved. So it's not just because they're Jewish that they're saved, but something happens where they turn to Jesus and they recognize him as their Lord and Savior. Because again, this new covenant, God made it. He promised it for the house of Israel and the house of Judah. And God's a fulfiller of his promises. So I'd encourage us not to mix up the two. Yes, there is the spiritualizing. We want to have the same kind of faith that Abraham had. But let's be careful we don't do away with the literal nation because God has made promises. Some of those promises, unconditional promises, not conditional, some of them unconditional to the nation of Israel. And we want to make sure we don't fall in that boat of saying God is through with the Jewish people. I believe it's led to a lot of anti-Semitism, to be perfectly honest with you. And I think it's really important that, that we recognize those things. That's what I think personally, okay? That's my personal opinion on that. So verse 17, from now on, let no one trouble me, for I bear in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus. You know what he's talking about, about the marks? He's talking about the scars on his back. 
Okay? The word marks is used in New Testament Greek for pagan slaves, okay? for, for Gentile slaves that were branded by their masters. That's the word that's, be, I, I bear the brand marks on my back. Paul talks, and this is a tiny little snapshot of some of the things that he went through. First Corinthians 4.11, he says, to the present hour, we both hunger and thirst, and we are poorly clothed and beaten and homeless. And second Corinthians 6.5, again, just a little snapshot. He says, in stripes, that speaks of the leather whip upon his back in imprisonments, in tumults, in labors, in sleeplessness, in fastings. And then in 2 Corinthians eleven twenty four and 25, from the Jews, five times I received 40 stripes minus one. According to the law, you could not beat a criminal more than 40 times with the leather whip. If you did, then you were in trouble as the one who was beating him and inflicting the punishment. So what they would do in fear that they might lose count, they would stop at 39, lest they lost count and they were actually at 40 and then go to 41. And so that's what he means by that. Five times he was whipped with 39. If you can do the math, that's 195 marks on his back, scars that are on his back. Not only that, he says, three times I was beaten with rods, the cluster of rods to come across the body, bruising the body, bruising the bone. And he says, once I was stoned. And he's referring to the time, I believe in Acts 14 in Lystra, where they picked up rocks and they threw rocks at him and they thought they killed him and they left him for dead. And so this is what Paul went through. So in essence, what he's saying is, man, don't let anybody give me any guff for this, all right? I, I bear the marks. And he, he is the bond slave, is he not? The bond slave of Jesus Christ. And you say, I bear the marks. And so he was the real deal. And so he closes this in verse 18. Brethren, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. Is it works or is it grace? Yes. Ephesians 2, 8. For by grace you have been saved. How are we saved? By grace, through faith, okay? By grace alone, through faith alone, in, in Christ alone. Every single one of Paul's letters starts grace and peace. Every single one. Flip through them and you'll see. Grace and peace. Every single one ends with grace. Is that sweet or what? What's, what's the main message? It's grace, yeah. It's not about us working our way into an acceptance. It's about him reaching down and offering to us that forgiveness. And once we've received that forgiveness and put our faith in him, it's him continuing to reach down in his favor, his grace, in essence going, take my hand, let me lead you and follow me. That's the idea of living the Christian life. And Paul over and over again drives that point home. And that's where we'll end our study in the book of Galatians. At this time, I'd like to ask you to go ahead and stand uh, to stretch your legs for just a moment. We are gonna be receiving the elements of communion today. I'd like to ask you to hold on to, uh, all of, uh, uh, to them until all of us are served so that we can partake of it together if you like. As we come to the Lord's table, we're doing this as a memorial, if you will. Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. We're, re we're remembering that the reason we can have hope, that we can have life, is because of the cross, is because of what Jesus did. 
He instituted this with his disciples on the night that he was betrayed. He would be crucified the next morning. And so he said, do this as often as you do it in remembrance of me. And so that's why we do this here at this church once a month. Prepare your heart. None of us in and of ourselves are worthy. It's all about what he has done. If you've got unconfessed sin in your life, then at this time, just say, God, I'm sorry. God, forgive me. Again, lay it at the foot of the cross and then remember the great sacrifice that he's made for you and take his hand and follow him. Let him lead you, okay? Father, thank you for this time we could spend in your word. We thank you for your love for us, Lord, and we thank you for that constant reminder that it's all about you. It's all about the grace that you extend to us. And Lord, I just pray that you would instill within our hearts that unwavering trust in you. And then that you would take our lives, oh God, as we follow after you and use them for your honor and glory, Lord. May you shine, I pray, through each one who is here today. I ask in Jesus' name, amen.